Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome everybody back to the J3 University Podcast. With me today is Luke Miller, co-host. Luke, how you doing, buddy? Good, man. Good. See you over there in the new house. Yeah, man, I have an office. It's weird. It's like I don't have to share the space with anyone. It's like my own little room. It, it looks massive. It is like very like, large. <laughs> it is very large. It looks like you're just set up in the loft or something. In, in, I, I don't know. That's how it appears, though. But it's, it's because there's literally nothing but my desk in here yet. <laughs> the large shit is still in the garage, so we yeah. still got to kind of decorate and make it look like an office and stuff, but utility chair desk make it work so that i can get stuff done it's always always moving it's like throw all your shit in a box get it out of the house as fast as possible then you show up and you're like oh man it's gonna take forever <laughs> all this <laughs> unpack each box where does this go where does that go it's such a slow slower process once you're unpacking yeah and the first things that come out are always the kitchen stuff because mm -hmm. you gotta our kitchen's yeah. like perfect the rest of the house is like a mess. Yeah, that's that was always like the top priority when moving is like, okay, how do I make the food transition as easy as possible? And my kitchen setup immediately needs to happen. Uh, <laughs> and like every apartments we moved to or anything, it was like, oh, let's just move this first. So we'll make sure we have our food. It's, it's priorities, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I'm done moving. I think this is our eighth move in two years. Um, I'm, I'm done to to eighth move in two and a half years or something. I'm done. You're, you're already at your permanent your, your retirement home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm retiring here. <laughs> well, oh, man. speak speaking on food. Today's our summarization of all of all, the, all these refeed series that we've been doing. So we've had the pleasure of Dr. Mike Isertel, Dr. Eric Helms, and also Jackson Pios, soon to be doctor at some point, um, is asking all these experts, what are their, uh, know from the literature, what, what, how do they analyze it, what are their, their takeaways from actual research, then how that has translated into the, the field and what they see and actually practice, where are we making mistakes with refeeds, and where are we doing the correct actions and, and maybe what we should be looking at moving forward and, and how that should shape our practice as coaches and athletes. So today, Luke and I are just going to kind of go through all the takeaways that they've, they've provided for us, our own personal insights into refeeds, and hopefully y'all will have some you know, direct application that you take away and won't be so convoluted with, with research and what this says and what, this, what that says and what you can actually be implementing. So, um, so start off, I mean, just with all this, we've, we've had some people lay kind of the groundwork with, with the literature. So uh, Luke, as far as you know, the evidence is concerned, you know, what are we looking at from all these speakers that we have? have talked to you regarding like the actual sciencey nerdy stuff. Yeah, I think that I think that the first point to make is that, you know, this portion of the literature is very, very early on in its infancy. And we're still trying to figure out, in fact, like Jackson was pointing out that P 
people are starting to shift their ideas of why they think refeeds work, right? At first it was this, you know, metabolic, you know, fat burning thing that raises the metabolic rate so much that, you know, you're able to keep your metabolic rate longer while dieting. And, and we still honestly probably don't fully have an explanation from like a physiological side, which means that more evidence is definitely needed in order to make a concrete conclusion or a more concrete conclusion um, which means that, you know, this is probably very, very open to interpretation. Um, I, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on like some of the things that Jackson was mentioning with some of the things he's been seeing in, in his studies and how it's actually probably opposing what he originally came into the field thinking was going to happen um, and into those studies and how it's probably changed our viewpoint, like we were discussing off camera on the utility of this and how we're like, possibly even considering the way that we, we run this within coaching. Yeah. So, you know, within the studies, when the first studies that I've have reviewed and looked at there, they are in the infancy. It's a lot of like overweight and obesity trials and <clears throat> looking at continuous energy restriction versus this intermittent dieting approach, which um, a lot of that in the research world, it, it's not as that applicable to athletes because it's it, the way it's implemented is not how we're actually using it on the field. So sometimes this means intermittent dieting. That might mean a day where you don't eat at all. Um, or they can be days that when you're actually eating above maintenance, it's way beyond maintenance. <clears throat> and so we don't have a, a great application. And there's a few like of these review papers that I, I read comparing intermittent dieting in several of the studies. And basically the conclusion in, in all these review papers is that um, com comparatively, the fat loss and, and metabolic effects, there, there just was no advantage. Um, even in muscle retention, there, there was an advantage. Now, there's a couple studies out there that oppose that. But as far as the research as a whole, it, it really wasn't. And that's what I've always, was, well, that's what I always thought, that there was some type of metabolic effect happening um, and that you would have improved muscle retention because, you know, you, you get depleted on prep you refeed and you feel really good and you have good training and you think, well, if I'm training better then that must be some sign that I'm having better muscle retention. And, and it's looking at the literature is helping us to evaluate why, why we're seeing those things and why we are not seeing them. So maybe we have this idea of like what we're noticing in the gym and, and doing these refeeds and not that to like write it off, it's like, hey, this isn't working, but it's just like, why, why are we seeing these things? And uh, I think that's, you know, what Jackson is kind of getting around to with his studies of looking at diet breaks and, um, and, and why he's not seeing the metabolic and fat loss effects, but he's noticing these effects for Im improved uh, adherence, but also hunger management, also decreased stress, in, in the dieting state, which all those things, if you add all those together, what is really challenging on prep? It, it's you, yeah, it, it's, it's the psychology side of it is, is tough, right? To keep pushing hard. Um, when hunger is high, fatigue's high, you're, you're, you're stressed just, you know, with, with everything going on, if you can reduce that burden and you make that prep feel much easier, uh, you can go into training with the mental side was like, man, I can attack today. And, that, and then your training's just improved just from a, a mental aspect. Um, and so you have to kind of tease that out whether you just have the person that's, you know, subject one 
of going in and say, Hey, I had a reefy day and I feel great. And I trained really hard. Is it from this metabolic effect or the glycogen increase, or is it just from the mental side of it? And that's kind of what we're getting to. I think with, with this is, is looking at that. There's more probably the mental side of it weighing in. Which is an interesting viewpoint. And something I was thinking about after post the discussion with Jackson is, you know, both of us being coaches, we're both also competitors, right? And so from a psychological viewpoint, the times that we've had refeeds, we have a very strong, probably emotional uh, reaction about how good we feel when those, those refeeds, you know, are implemented. And then also we're getting this positive feedback most of the time from clientele that when we do implement them, because it's the same way for them, right? If you've been dieting for a long time, these refeeds are like a you know, like a holy grace for some people, you know, and depending on the person, which um, makes us wonder that like, has that so far up until literature is starting to develop skewed our objectivity in the actual utility of it because of how beneficial the, the psychological side of it is, right? And it's something that is curious to me as someone who tries to be as objective as possible with like the data and the numbers and, and what is actually happening has made me start to second, second guess, like, what is the actual utility purpose of, of the refeed? And I think that diving into that psychological benefit is where we're going to probably end up seeing where most of the benefit is. Yeah, I think the, the, the purpose, understanding your rationale behind what we do is so important. And a lot of times we're implementing these things, maybe from the wrong rationale. And when, when you have this understanding now, it, it does make me pause and say like, why should I be implementing this right now in this client? And, um, you know, I think we could, you could probably dive into the instances where that does get implemented. Um, but before we do that, before I want to get into the actual application, there's a few other points that I think have, have still been brought up. Uh, yeah. By, by some of these other, like the, like we, when we talk with Mike, um, you know, there's a clear role, like in the evidence, like the bodybuilding population is not represented still. Um, now with this research coming out with Jackson, it should be interesting because he said these, these were high level athletes, some bodybuilders and yep. some getting down to like low body fat levels. I don't think he mentioned like what that body fat level was though. Right. I think he said most of them started around 15 ish percent, but I think he said almost 40% were competitors. If I remember correctly, 40%. Did you say how lean they actually had, had gotten down to? I, don't, I didn't recall. I think he said around 10%. I'd have to refer back to the episode, but I'm pretty sure like 15 to 10% was the chain. Okay. So they, were, they weren't like. Drastic. Drastically. Like, yeah. And I remember him saying like too, like this wasn't putting them through a contest prep. You know? Um, so with, with Mike, Mike Isertel, you know, he was, you know, mentioning like within a contest prep setting, when glycogen levels are getting low and they do because we're faced with like having, you know, people having episodes of low, low blood glucose and low blood sugar, just walking, doing cardio outside, like walking. And I've done this myself, like just, just walking in the evenings and I start getting dizzy and cold sweats from just low intensity walking. And it's like, man, how low can my glycogen levels be? And I've gone into training sessions like that too, where I start my first few sets my glycogen dips down and man, my, my mental ability to, to train, but even performance is a huge drop off. Like train with low blood glucose, it's, it, it's shit. Like you won't train for shit. And we have the research looking at 
um, low carbohydrate, like ketogenic type style dieting versus high carbohydrate and performance drop-offs aren't there. Um, so that's an aspect to consider within training is, is that you still need to have some adequate glycogen and glucose availability for adequate training. Now, what stage does that happen in? Well, we're probably not seeing it in these studies that we're, we're bringing these athletes down to right. potentially. We, we can't really say without having in the studies, but anecdotally, I can definitely say when, when I'm having lo extremely low carbohydrate and I'm training that much, that it does affect my training performance. Yep. Um, what, do, what were your thoughts on, because uh, uh, Jackson had mentioned like, you know, refeeding someone when they're flat and this was kind of like he, this misapplication. I know that's kind of application based, but as far as uh, getting flat and training performance and is, you know, and weak body parts might get flat sooner and should we maybe even be a consideration now for, for refeeds? I think, it, I think it might be contextually dependent upon how bad the situation is, right? Because like it, you're, you're pretty much going to run flat the majority of prep, especially as we get towards the end. Like that's just a necessity of getting inside out lean, right? So I think he has a, a fair, fair point and a, a very, very astute point in that we probably don't need to be refeeding to fix temporary flatness within a dieting phase, right? I think that that's a very fair point. And I think we probably do this without even like really thinking about it, right? We understand where the point of, of no return is. And that's probably where session performance drops off drastically. And that's where we're probably using those feedback markers of, you know, how are we feeling during the day? Are your legs eight feet behind you when you're walking? Is performance in the gym continuing to progress? As probably more of a marker of, okay, you're, you're beyond that point of just staying flat for dieting. You know, you're probably needing it more for the not only psychological break, but, but possibly fatigue management um, side. And we can kind of dive into when we get into the application of, you know, something that I think Eric Helms did a very good job of explaining was the total energy availability. Yeah. And I think, that, I think that's a concept that needs to be discussed more often in the applicability of refeeds and how it's not always just a nutritional application and in, in managing someone from first week of contest prep all the way to the end. Yeah. And, and I've, I've definitely have made the mistakes in the past of seeing someone get a little flat and just refeeding them because, Hey, you're flat. We need to like, make sure we keep some level of fullness, but not diving into too much of like how's performance. And uh, if it's still solid, well, why don't we just keep going? And because I've also run into the issues of refeeding people and taking away that those times of being in, in a deficit and that, and I'll, you'll see weight go up after like too big of a refeed. And then it's there for a few days. And finally they like pull back down. Maybe they get back down to a low by the end of the week. It's like, well, what could have that have, have been if they, you know, kept dieting and, uh, and, and hit maybe even a newer low. And I've had them behind because of doing these things. So I've messed up in, in those instances versus like, Hey, let's just keep going. Um, cause I'd mentioned on one of these talks, like in 2015 working with Jansen, like we had, I had one sushi meal the whole time. That was all I had. The rest of the time we just ran a straight calorie deficit. And, um, that was the leanest that I'd gotten. And I dropped a ton, ton of weight though. That's what I had to happen. So, you know, there wasn't, uh, all this, you know, I just had to accept being flat, but yeah. it, it got me shredded. And I think that's, that's the thing is like, you have to just, many people, 
it, it just seems like there's a lot of people that, that want refeeds. <laughs> of course, we all want them, but uh, to make sure like, hey, you're going to have to get flat and accept that sucky look. And that's when you're really going to get lean. I think getting on that same point about flat and refeeding around, around those instances, uh, Mike had brought up, you know, the, the idea of like diet fatigue versus training fatigue, which I really liked him separating those out because for one fatigue now is, is like kind of talked about and it's just thrown around and we don't, there's not an understanding by many people of what, what, what is fatigue and where, where, <laughs> how do you even contextualize it? It's a feeling, you know, it's the sensation of a feeling like uh, more lethargic and run down and, and there's lack of energy and focus. Um, but physiologically, like where do you separate it in the body? And so there, you know, he talked about there being a training and diet fatigue. They overall both contribute to systemic fatigue. So this overall feeling of lack of energy and drive, but you can separate them out too. So diet fatigue can be locally, like with, with within a skeletal muscle, you have a decrease of glycogen level. Um, you can have connective tissue damage, muscle tissue damage. Um, all those things are fatigue generating. Then there's also, um, you know, and then that's part of the training related fatigue, you know, damaging uh, skeletal tissue. Then that also leads to central fatigue as well. So fatigue with the nerve system. So there's like points when you can have training fatigue, but not diet fatigue necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and you could have, because in the off season, it was, a, it was a great example. It's like, you have plenty of food, but you could still get fatigued and need to deload, right? It's like, yes, absolutely. Um, but just like in, in, in contest prep, I'm like, you could be training and not have like connective tissue beat up or anything, but still be really low in, in glycogen level. And that might be rationale for, you know, having, having a refeed. So being able to separate the two, and that also gives you some idea into how you might need to manage someone's on a prep. And so that, that's what we can, we can, we'll get into the application as well of like, should we be refeeding? And is that what that client needs or should we be managing training? And uh, I thought that was a great differentiation that he brought up, but it kind of goes along the side of like refeeding when someone's flat and, and, and glycogen. Um, um, yep. And I think that that's a very good point to make because ironically, at post that episode, I've had like three coaches stop me slash message me asking me about what do we do nutritionally if we have to deload during a prep? Mm. Like, do they, do they coincide? And, and, and to that point that you just made, we might not necessarily have to do that or need to do that or even want to do that if, if we're noticing that the fatigue is, is on one side of the equation rather than the other, right? So then this is going to come down to pacing the prep and making sure you're on time with everything. And I think that this is more objectively, um, not summarizing, but giving you uh, an idea in the way to think about of, of the utility of refeeds and where should we actually use them. And I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway from Israel's is like, you know, they're probably not this, this gold mine at the end of the rainbow. They're just something that we can use as a tool, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing is like, we've, we've set up these approaches that we're like the diet approach is a cyclic approach. Right. Um, and that's probably not, that's, that's starting to get too dogmatic. And I think in our views 
of when we are now becoming like, oh yeah, John is the five on two off guy. Or uh, when I was getting to it, it was like carbohydrate cycling. It's like, that was the approach. Um, and that you were that guy. And it's like, it, it should just be a tool, not a defined way to implement it. Um, and, and, and before we step too far away from like the actual literature though, cause I, Eric had brought up some interesting points because Eric in, in 3DMJ, they've of course been app applying like refeeds way before, like, you know, we were even like really diving into research that much. Right. And they were noticing these things. And Eric brought up some really valid points on what the other things that he had noticed, which I found most intriguing was um, the delay in uh, amenorrhea and menstrual cycle loss in there was some like short-term uh, studies, which I mean, there was like some minor takeaways, but basically they would uh, feed feed women for like you know five days, low energy uh, content, and then have like a, a one day overfeeding, and it could increase uh, like luteinizing hormone pulsatility and T uh, three function. Um, and there was there's like a couple of these studies he had brought up that were like that. Uh -huh. And this potential to put it, like delay the effect of losing someone's menstrual cycle, which why could that even be beneficial? Um, and potentially like, well, estrogen is very, it's an anabolic hormone. There's lots of benefits for females and you, it starts bringing up the point of uh, longevity within, within the sport. And, uh, you know, menstrual cycle loss could also lead to like bone mineral density loss and uh, other issues in, in these in these females because um, I've I've had females that have been like WPD that have to stay that lean that haven't had menstrual cycles in years and they probably never will again yeah. and so well what if you had someone that you're able to maintain this somewhat and then after these years of you know being on prep they can they could still have you know reproductive capability and uh, I think those are type of things that we're not haven't even considered in the literature uh -uh. Um, well, I mean, some people are, but we haven't put it all together big picture. And that was what's Eric's, I thought was really cool about what Eric was bringing up because in exercise physiology, we're looking at these objective measures of like resting metabolic rate, lean mass, um, and fat mass. And well, what about, and, and then Jackson started to bring in, you know, the psychological aspects but there's other other things about like for, for females like hormone uh, decreases or or, or long-term menstrual cycle changes on contest prep, um, and this that gets into the, our other topics that he had brought up too about um, he was he would refeed his clients and notice like hey that's the only time I would have proper bowel function that's on yeah. prep, yep and and not that that's a, that's the reason like we should be doing refeeds, but the point of that was that there's a complex system going on with with reds and energy availability and that with within this it affects a lot of different processes in the body and within all those processes is each one we could investigate different markers that refeeds might be benefiting and we're not doing that research can't be that comprehensive in one study so there's a lot that we don't know in, in other words there's some that we do but there's a lot of gray area but yet we're yet to have like a yes or no to refeeds there, there's more of this this gray area and there's still application and um i think that's 
maybe we should get into the actual application and, <laughs> and, and the takeaways from this. Um, I do think there's one last thing that Eric brought up that I think is a good point before we do transition. It's like the cherry on top. And it's funny because the case study he brought up is of the female about not getting her cycle back for 18 months post-show is actually like one of the first two research studies I read when I entered grad school. So it was like, you know, one of those cool things that you, you hear him mention it and it's like, oh yeah, I think that's like when I first started getting the research, right? Um, and uh, making that case for the total energy availability to really show how much it can affect someone's ability to recoup, right? And like he had mentioned that there was a high probability that it was an aggressive um, reverse rather than a recovered diet, most likely, where total energy availability was rather low. Um, yeah. And it delayed the the return of the menstrual cycle, right? Which is slightly theoretical, right? Because we don't know exactly what the reverse looked like, but is is more than likely highly probable. So, um, I think from there, that's like the cherry on top to transition into what are we going to do with all this information and how are we going to apply it? Yeah. Well, I think um, my my initial things like. To, would be back back this out starting big picture where you're starting at at, at prep right. and I, I think agreement amongst all of the guys that we had talked to was factoring in your timeline for prep and um, of course this is this is health health aside because that kind of is a different conversation slightly slightly it, it's one of the same um, but it, it, our goal is to get on stage and be absolutely shredded like this is of, of the utmost importance for a competitor walking out. So the length of prep has to be considered. And if you're adding in any of these strategies where you're going above your calorie deficit into maintenance or surplus, those are days that are taking away from you um, getting, getting leaner. So that has to be factor in because in some of the studies that we could see, it could double the time that someone took to diet. And that might not be an effective timeline for someone, you know, it might, that might, that's going to be the difference between you being on stage in shape or not. Right. And uh, I think tracking out this timeline is what many people don't do. Would you agree? I mean, what, which person agree? Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they expect to start prep at the stereotypical 16 weeks out or the stereotypical 20 weeks out and just expect them to be able to, to refeed during that process. And it's like, well, hold on sunshine. Like you're like 30 weeks out body comp wise. So we, we got to take a step back here. Right. And it's just, the process is not the same, but they expect it to be And the taking the time to map it out is where refeeds actually are probably going to be more of a discussion. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people, even coaches, you start prep with someone and it's kind of like this week by week analysis of where they're at. I think some people are really good at it. Um, but other coaches, you'll see a good change for a week, then you won't see one change. And I think you start losing sight of that week zero when you're at peak week and where you need to head, like where's the long-term direction as long with your short term and keeping that person on track. And this has been an, an issue that I've had in the past is that like, so at the start of this prep, you have to like have a, a reasonable analysis of like how much fat this person needs to lose and what is a reasonable amount that they can be doing per week. And then that should maybe be kind of paced out and, and tracked along some, some timeline um, and, and always being able to look back on. So if you have someone that's, 
you know, if they're 250 and you know their last stage weight was 210. And, and, and then you're like, what's their experience level? What could have been reasonable for them to put size on? You know, it's like, okay, well, realistically, they probably still have maybe 35 pounds to lose. What is the timeline for that? And I think this is when you can look back on, on data and, and give you some ideas and clues on what, what you should be working with timeline-wise. And, and so we've had these numbers given out, hey, 1% weight loss per week, et cetera. Uh, maybe that's two and a half pounds for this person. Then you can start mapping these things out and towards the end of prep, it's gonna go slower. You have weeks where you might stall out. But I think building that out and, and doing some, some just crunching the numbers initially, because um, you have some, a female that's like, hey, I'm 10 weeks out and you have 30 pounds to lose, three pounds a week at, you know, this maybe 150 pound female. It's like, ah, that's 2% body weight loss per week. Is that going to be reasonable? You know, no, no, it's not at all. So um, I think still the timeline matters. Yep. But, but so with the timeline, if, we're, if we want to utilize these tools and what we've taken away from these individuals, like, what, what, what would we be implementing into our planning the timeline with diet breaks or refeeds if we're even going to be using it? So I think that, I think the point that you make when to pull out of that is keeping your eye on week zero the entire time throughout the process. When, especially when we set the timeline, right? And we talked about with, with I believe it was Mike, about how the change at the beginning will set the pace for the rest of the prep. And I think that that first three, four, five week period will give you contextually a lot of information back to your timeline on whether refeeds will be a very high utility or not. So you talked about like mapping out the percent change per week. What does that look like on an actual body uh, or pounds per for that individual? And if they, follow along that change of pace and or beat it because you were mentioning how like you know before before we hopped on how renee took a big drop right and you were like yeah. okay we're a little bit of a head schedule you know if you're able to do that in the first four to five weeks then it's like okay this is a very good tool that we're going to be able to use to mitigate psychological fatigue but if the first three to four weeks look like okay you're not really changing at the rate of the percentage that i i, I wanted to change these first four weeks you know, according to that timeline, then you're like, all right, we got to dig, right? Like it's time to get back on track and get back on the timeline. And that is a good way mapping that out to keep your eye on week zero when we're 16 weeks out, right? Because some of these people starting preps 20, 22 weeks out, like that's five fucking months. And, you know, if you don't keep your eye on that timeline that you build out beforehand, then it's very easy to get lost in the weeds and, and miss, miss the mark for the first one. Yeah, no, I think, I think that gives two good points to, to take away. Like for one, planning out the long-term timeline. I, I like to try to plan in maybe two or three weeks of not dieting, um, at least. And so when you have someone like, hey, we're going to do a 22-week prep, you're like, oh my gosh, my last coach only did 16 weeks. I must be really out of shape. <laughs> it's like, well, no, no. Because um, you could have one week where, hey, it doesn't go right. And, and, and stuff happens, life happens. Um, you could have planning to be ahead and also feed into the show, which is considered a diet break. You know, that's, that's part of that strategy. Then you could have one week, which we, we're, we're gonna bring up here about maybe deloading, or maybe that means a diet break as well. So these are like our long-term planning things from the beginning. And I think the short-term, like what you bring up is like how you see these first weeks go. 
if someone's like blowing through fat loss and you're like, Oh, wow. Well, you know, we, we can slow this down a bit or we can ease that burden of prep. Let's have a, a day of increased food. And we, we know the rationale behind we're doing it and we're not taking away from that long-term timeline. Uh, and, and to give a great, like, I'll give Renee's example because that gives some hard numbers for people. Cause I know I hate, I, I know I hate just listening to like this, these generalities and applications. So uh, Renee is st started prep and this has been 10 days into prep. Um, but my initial pull was a 15% calorie reduction. So she, she'll average right now around like 1500 calories. Right. I also increased her energy expenditure because her food, it's 1500 calories. I didn't want to drop her too much. So she increased her step count as well. Well, over, over these past, the past seven days, cause I didn't count the first because she had a cheat meal. And so there was some water drop, but over the past seven days, she's dropped like three pounds. Um, which for her body weight is a 2% drop, which is a little faster than what I go. Usually one and a half percent is good. Um, so she's like 143 today. Um, around stage weight, she's around like 127. Okay. So that's, that's only 16 pounds above stage weight. We still have 19 weeks to diet. So it's like, pff, this is your way, you're way ahead. <laughs> you know? So today I'm like, Hey, why don't we add, 50 grams of carbs in, which, which is about um, a little more than a 10% increase in calories. That way she can enjoy some food. She'll have, she'll have it all with one meal. You know, it's not because she's flat or anything. Although she, she reports it. She's like, I feel small, I feel small and just gushy. That's like, yeah, because you initially you have that like, you know, drop in glycogen and it's that stage where you're kind of a little, get a little flat, but you still have fat on you. Um, so that was the application that I used it for today. It's like, Hey, there's no need for a metabolic boost. There's, it's not about um, muscle retention necessarily right now because body fat's high. So the, the, she, she was worried, like, I think I'm losing too fast. Um, what about muscle retention? I'm like, uh, you know, it's a very valid conversation to have. Uh, faster rates of fat loss can lead to more muscle, muscle loss, but at a higher body fat level, it's not, not as liable. But she was moving fast. So I'm like, well, let's, let's increase your food today. And then what I'll do is if she keeps dropping at that pace after this, um, then I'll probably raise her overall baseline diet. So she got more food every single day versus yeah. having to have several days of being way in this calorie calorie deficit. And so I think that's another, another takeaway is if you are setting up something like this to not um, be putting someone in such a severe deficit per day, just to get a refeed out of them on the weekend. Um, and uh, you know, that was from, you know, Bill Campbell's research of, the five days at 35% of a deficit and then two days refeeding them versus just doing 25% deficit the whole time. It's like someone might feel better just having more food every single day versus being really, really low. And right. uh, that's the psychology part of this application as well. It can be good or bad. So it's not always just a good psych psychological aspect. Have you seen that too? And, or how, how does that change how you apply it, at least psychologically on the, on the short-term side of refeeding? I think that, I think that it's very, very contextually upon the athlete in that, you know, there's definitely some people where it's such a psychological different day that it actually makes them drag on the five days that they are on the, what you would call the diet before the refeed. So like if you're running like the stereotypical five and two, right? Their training performance and how happy they are and how they look forward to those days are so high 
that then they get around to that first five day point and it's like, Oh shit. Like, you know, I felt great. I'm going to feel like shit again. And they just auto automatically assume the psychological, like, you know, my calories are low. I should feel like shit. My training performance shouldn't be good when it's like, no, like, you know, the glycogen is going to stay with you for quite a bit of time. Like you're, you're probably going to be feeling really should feel really good for those majority of those five days. Right. And then also we had the considerations of like, okay, does someone have a history of binge eating? If someone has a history of like, you know, anorexia or binge eating, something like that, then it might not be the best, best way to, to go about it because then we're starting to build this psychological craving for those high days. Right. And we're starting to push them down this, possibilities to binge where I've seen some people who do do that. I had, I had one guy, um, three weeks out and he was like right on timeline for, um, for, for making it to the stage. And he, he, he works a pretty stressful job. He's a firefighter. And I was like, all right, we're going to do our last refeed for the prep. And then we're cutting it down. The dude ate like 8,000 calories that day. And I was like, what are you kidding me? And he was like afraid to check in because he was so disappointed in himself because he knew what, what he did was wrong. Granted by the grace of God, he still made it. But, um, what did he eat? Oh, he went to like subway and got cookies and like ended up getting ice cream and oh dude, it was bad. That's a lot of food. I mean, 8,000 calories. I mean, yes, you're on a mission on prep. You could do it though. Like the the drive to do it. It's crazy. He said he just psychologically, he had just, it had been like a long day at work. I mean, being a firefighter, I mean, that sucks, like, especially prepping. And he's just like, you know, I, I got that food and I felt so much better because like he had like his first two meals of the day and yeah. then it was just done. Like, and then just, it just the rest of the day was down the shitter. And so it was like, all right, well, clearly I can't really do that with you very frequently because we had set up this system on that prep where, it was pretty much every six to nine days I was giving him a refeed. So he would stay in that deficit for six to nine days. We'd pull off and then we'd go back and just, he was doing well with that. And then just all of a sudden it was like, and looking back, he probably did have too much of a psychological proclivity to look forward to those days, but you know, they, they aren't always positive. And that's like someone moving forward that I'll probably map out a, a prep that's going to be just a little bit more of a consistent deficit unless performance takes this large, huge drop. And hopefully that might be something we could fix with a deload rather than a nutritional fix than anything. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's some, some great points. And I, I've felt it myself, even dying, like when refeeds have been implemented and it's more palatable foods are introduced over what I'm, what I'm like currently eating on my diet. And man, those just, light up your dopamine receptors and it makes you feel good it, and you and it's a drive to even eat more of it because it's it's coming from such an extreme of of deprivation and hunger and then you introduce this it's like you know it's like a drug high you're like how do i get more of that well you just keep eating <laughs> and uh for some people that's like turns into this binge and then you feel bad you feel guilt and you restrict again then you binge and the refeeds are turning into like this binge pattern of eating which of restriction which that's uh can take someone and, and build in that type of you know eating disorder into them so that's the the person to really look out for but also of how we should be programming these these refeed days or maybe even how we even talk to clients about refeed days so we don't start you know initiating that that thought process of that you're going to be able to have like 
these binging and, and, and fun foods or, you know, what, what do you want to call it? Like a, a refeed? Cause what people call like cheeseburgers refeeds. Um, and so maybe you don't even do it with your client in terminology. You're like, this is your leg day diet. You don't even call it whatever high day or reefy day. Cause th then you're putting this idea of like more, more foods. Like, no, this is just your diet you do on your leg day, but we'll know as coaches that the food is higher and really? it's serving that purpose that we need it to, whatever that may be. Um, and, and then also there, like I mentioned with Jackson, like post reefy day can like hunger can be way higher. And I know if people have thought in thought of like, man, my metabolism is, is really cooking now. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, so hungry day. And that, that doesn't mean that your metabolism is increased. It just means that your body's registering that you're back in a, a large deficit from a large intake. And so that like dress, that vast difference that dropped from this high food intake back to this low, it like registers big time versus have stayed in that deprivation state, whether there's actually increased hunger cueing or it's more of just like an increased awareness of it. But I, I, that's what I noticed too, after like really large reefy days, like, God, the next day was brutal. Um, I was so much more hungry and it was, it was hard to stay on your diet. And so, uh, you know, it's, it might be making the, the diet more challenging too. Yeah. Um, so I think for application of doing like a single day type refeed, uh, what I've seen more beneficial is and what we had talked about is just raising someone just slightly up to the maintenance level which a maintenance level off your deficit because we were talking about, Hey, this might be a 20 to 30% calorie deficit for some people that might only be 200, 300 calories. Um, like this past prep, like I would have a hundred gram carb increase. Like that's 400 calories. That's, that's not, not a th you know, not eating 2000 grams of carbs that day. Uh, and it's all the same foods. You just increase you like if you're eating rice or whatever it is, like that's, that's the type of foods that you're going to keep increasing off of. And it's funny that you bring that up because the, the setup that I told you that I did with Emily is exactly what you just mentioned. That's her, her hamstring day meal plan is, is that um, higher day calorically. And I really like how she seems to be responding well to it. I mean, we're not too far into it, but about the making the adjustment where the deficits created with the other six days. And it's not necessarily, you know, this large jump, it's just what the baseline diet started the prep at. And we're still pretty early on in the process, but, you know, sometimes psychologically setting someone up for success by labeling it different things or watching the way you term things is probably one of the biggest benefits of refeeds we had discussed was psychological. So if we can utilize them in a manner that's going to make them feel a little bit better, but still psychologically think of them as like, okay, I'm doing what I need to do. And this is the plan then that's probably more beneficial than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, then I think the other application aspect within the, that single day uh, refeed, I mean, you have your food sources, but um, probably like, I think it still has some utility in when you're doing these days it for peaking someone. Yep. And and, and how someone looks full versus flat before you get into peak week. And, you know, we'll get into peak week, I think here shortly, but I think just before you're there, before you're a few weeks out, when you have someone that has these days still in place, and, and you, I think you, you can realize with a lot of people that they don't need as much food as you think they do to get a full and still hard look. And that is the biggest thing that I've taken away these past year of coaching 
is uh, even how little I need to stay full. And then if you, if you haven't done any of this and you go into a peak week and you start feeding someone, you could have an idea that you're going to need to feed them a lot and it's, it's easier to miss the mark versus just a little bit and, and yet getting them full. So, I mean, I think there's still some idea to utilize in there, but again, that has to be towards the end of prep when someone's already, already pretty, pretty lean. Yep. And I think another, another point there too, in testing the, in testing the refeed into the show is how long does it take them to clear like some of the water retention, right? Like, is it someone that, you know, we can feed for two days and then it takes two days for them to really fully clear it. Is it someone that, you know, immediately upon feeding, they look dry and hard. Like, what does that look like transitioning into prep? And it's like, okay, we might choose the days that we add the caloric additions in a little bit different, depending on how the look changes relative to the feeding. And again, that's another utility in giving you information going into peak week. Um, which is something to always think about. But one thing we haven't touched yet is nutrition around possible deloads within training. Yeah. And it's something that I think we really need to hit because this is something that I think is very, very misunderstood and the separation of nutrition, diet fatigue and training fatigue. And what does that look like? Do we have to change nutrition if we're doing a deload, et cetera? And I kind of want to get us started on, on that conversation. I think that'd be good. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. It was, uh, because we, we, had, we had talked about this. I like threw a question at you when you were asking me about doing a deload and prep. And um, basically a lot of people have, have said, and I remember Scott Stevenson, he had said like, you know, um, or I'm not going to screw up the saying. It's like, you know, d dance, was it? Uh, I don't know the saying. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> dance with who brought you to the dance. I don't know. I totally messed that up. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Anyway, what built the muscle to begin with is what you can continue to do on prep. Um, right. Now, that's just that does, is not to say like um, there shouldn't be some changes going on, but there isn't any vast changes. Uh, but if you were to be deloading the off season, well, there's probably rationale to be deloading on on prep as well, and maybe more so on prep. But there's also you know, a timeline in place, right. and you have to make considerations for that. Just like with when we add in a refeed, it's days taking you away from prep. If you're doing a deload, this is also days that we're probably reducing a training stimulus that's gonna be retaining muscle. So this probably won't be an ideal time to be pushing a deficit really hard when you are doing a deload, which too many deloads on prep would, well, for one, it could lead to this poor training and, and, and poor muscle retention. Or if you're coinciding this with a, a, a refeed or diet break, this also just means time of not dieting. Um, but within contest prep, there's absolutely going to be an accumulation of fatigue that's going to occur. And we'll have to have some point where we're going to have to accept that this fatigue is going to be present and we cannot uh, de remove it to a certain extent. Um, yeah. And that is just embracing the suck and digging hard in what you have to do. But still, there's, there's a balance to it because I've gone through preps myself where I've run myself into the ground and I'm just, it just, zero like barely can walk barely walking right you're just and you find every single possible way to like lower your neat like in my chair i'll be like wheeling around the office and like you know, every way to conserve energy but there absolutely should be a, a utility in deloading yeah. on on prep and uh 
Because what do you do? What do you do if you're like connective tissues beat to shit and you're like, man, I'm about to tear this pec off. Like, what do you do on prep then? Well, you try to work around it, right? Um, so what is your application of, and we're talking with all these people of how you would it be implementing a deload on prep, Luke? <laughs> Since you, uh, you've no, never I, done a deload on prep, right? Not for myself. No. But, it, but in instances though, you still have had days where you have to pull back or remove fatigue in some capacity. Yeah, and I, I've, I've had to deload a client during prep before. Um, because my, my counter argument to this sometimes is, well, if the program's written appropriately at volume levels that are appropriate going into a prep and we are able to make the micro adjustments to volume across the prep, is that enough to manage fatigue? And I think that for some people that that can be the case. However, we need to be very aware of what the difference between diet fatigue and training fatigue looks like. When it comes to deloading in a prep, we need to do, like you said, we don't want to have to, I think the point here is not to drive someone into the necessity of a week long deload. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's where the biggest utility of deloading during prep is going to look like where, you know, sometimes like if we, if we push things a little hard in the off season and it takes six to seven days to deload, then, you know, it's really not the end of the world because the training quality is going to come back very fast. Um, but trying to keep the deload period as short as possible, but still achieve the goal of fatigue is always what I have in my mind when I'm going to do a deload with someone within a prep. And what that looks like may be different. And it's probably more just an integration of uh, rest days in between the training days. And it's gonna be a slight drop in the baseline volume. So that as we transition back out, we get back into the split. We're probably not too far off the volume landmarks that we were gonna be training at in the first place. We're just implementing a drop in fatigue. Now, that applicability is going to depend on how much fatigue is present. So obviously, the more fatigue that has to be dropped, the more aggressive you have to be with it. But obviously, we want to plan training across a prep where the starting volume level and the regressions and volume across a prep possibly limit the need of a long deload. And it's just a couple days within a prep if needed. I think that was beautifully said. <laughs> um, because there is a difference in training. Um, like our, our structure of training is relatively the same year round, but, but in off season, we are having to drive up more stimulus, which does accumulate more fatigue and potentially more connective tissue disruption and, and muscle tissue disruption. Um, but in, in a contest prep setting, the goal is really it's, it's more muscle maintenance and we can get away with pretty low volumes doing it. Uh, so there should be this decrease in volume, what you need for muscle retention and keeping performance up as you diet down. Um, and then I think you're, you're absolutely right on if you're running into connective tissue issues, it, it brings about the question like, is your programming right to begin with? I think there's uh, Chris Beardsley wrote the uh, awesome article on, you know, are deloads even necessary, basically challenging the idea. Like if you're running into the issue of needing a deload, maybe your training volume is too high to begin with, or you're picking poor exercises. Um, now I, I do think that to an advanced state, you'll have to keep pushing up progressively enough to where some fatigue management needs to happen. But a lot of this about deloads, I think gets pulled from like the strength community and athlete community uh, to where, you know, they're the, what we're looking for hypertrophy, there's lots of ways that we can reduce fatigue 
And we're just trying to drop some fatigue to get back to training again. That's really it. We're not trying to peak strength or peak performance. And a lot of those strategies have been taken away from athletes where they, they, they taper their training down. They're trying to peak for this event. We're not trying to do that in bodybuilding. So for us, a lot of times it's just implementing one rest day. Then you feel great again. It's like, well, Hey, I feel awesome. Should I go train? It's like, Oh no, man, you're doing a seven day deload, but why? I feel really good. And I, it's like, oh, no, no, you just can't do it because that's what you do for a deload. It has to be seven days. Um, so I, I think, you know, putting all that in context of, of why we use deloads is, is just to drop off fatigue and get you back to training again. There's lots of ways to drop fatigue. And as soon as you feel ready to train again, hell, go train again. Um, and that's what we can do on prep. So a lot of times on prep, it's like implementing a rest day is enough for me to drop the issues with training fatigue and get someone back without having to take a whole week of, of lower volume. And I think that is probably poor programming contest prep. If you're driving someone up, you're raising volume, volume up, 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 or you're keep them like crushing effort level, right? Even if volume doesn't change and they're just like drilling themselves in the ground to where, Oh shit. Now we have to take a whole week off of prep because you've run way too far. That's also like a, probably an assessment issue too like not keeping, maybe they're not communicating enough with you. Cause I've had issues, clients like that where I can't draw it out of them. They're like that, that hardcore tough man where it's like, they could be dying. And I'd finally hear about it. Like, Hey, I have 10 minutes left before I'm, you know, <laughs> that's it. Um, so yeah, I think that's the utility on prep. And personally, I think I would rather have a diet break with someone and just let them keep training and have quality training versus trying to have it coincide with a deload i agree 100 percent. if you have to deal with a client though what are you doing nutritionally so within that um i i typically like with a deload and there's usually set volume reduction which it's depends on the individual because a lot of times it's not that huge of a calorie difference um, right. that people really think so some people, they always ask me, should my calories change within this? And, and, and yes, there'll be some reduction in, in calorie expenditure. Um, but the idea of the deload is, is dropping fatigue. So if you're still in a calorie deficit, you're still generating some fatigue. So I think at, at minimum maintenance, calorie maintenance would be ideal. So if you do re reduce volume, it drops, you know, brings the calorie surplus up slightly, like to closer to maintenance, but I think some food addition could coincide as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then that gets you right back into the deficit after that period. Yeah, and we could also too, like one thing I've done is not change them nutritionally, but change the deficit from the activity side of the equation. Okay. So reduce the activity where, you know, the caloric intake is probably closer to maintenance now that activity has dropped pretty significantly. Um, because one thing you also have to consider is the net caloric, if, if more rest days are introduced, the net caloric intake across a week is reduced for most people, yeah. right? Because training days are typically higher caloric calories than a rest day. So you are, you know, putting a deficit within a week there if more rest days are introduced. But I, I've, I've, I've done it successfully where doing an aggressive activity pull alongside the deload was enough to allow someone to drop it and feel good again. Yeah, I think that that gets into the psychology aspect of what that person needs yep. to feel that ease of prep. And I have some clients where they can't just rely on neat 
and they don't have the time to do it just to increase steps all day. Like I can't walk for two hours a day. They have to do some type of like moderate intensity cardio. And for that, for some of those people, that cardio might be more fatiguing than the actual diet itself. Like, Hey, I can manage hunger. Like I'm fine, but man, this cardio, like it's like about to get on the elliptical or whatever. It's like just a mental struggle, the stress of that. Then it's also maybe fatiguing legs. And so for that individual, you're absolutely right. Like maybe the, the better thing would be dropping calories, working on the energy expenditure side to, to make up and get them to that calorie maintenance spot. If you yep. need, need to manage them that way while someone else, they, they, maybe it's the diet issue and that raising food up could be a big benefit to that person. But this gets into the, the, the idea of the rationale. Why do we implement these refeeds? And it's, probably a lot of it is psychological and, and whether that's the psychological aspect coming from training reduction or from caloric increase, um, it's, it's going to be person, person dependent, but it's likely not going to be like, because we're boosting metabolism or anything like, like, like that. Yeah. And this is why I kind of view refeeds as a subsect of energy availability because it yeah. gives you the flexibility to adjust it according to the clientele's needs. And, and definitely like going through this as, as a new way to think about it. Um, Cause you, you, you a lot of times you separate the two and mm -hmm. you don't think about how they're interrelated and that you could do both, right? You can, you can work on both sides of the equation. And uh, I think that's really beneficial and a, and a tool to utilize. It kind of opens you up to an, an, another higher level of thinking to implement this within clients. Um, I think lastly, maybe we could just hit on, on peak week because we brought up and what we would be lead, kind of leading into that. And then I think yeah. uh, Jackson Pios, I think he had the kind of my ideal preferred way of like peaking someone, which you get someone shredded out lean. And that's what we all agree on for everyone. You have to be super, super lean for the, for before you get into peak week. And then he basically runs a diet break. So just slowly tapering food up and watching the look until they maintain. And, and you could, you know, if you've gotten flat on prep, but shredded out lean, and then you fill someone out a little bit with, with increasing food, they'll still have that muscle, like that leanness, but the fullness will come. And that's almost how you just want to put someone on stage. So, uh, and then you could keep them training the same and, and that makes the easiest peak ever. Um, and then they'll start flushing fluids. Like when we talked about with, that uh, could be another, a benefit you're just reducing fatigue so reducing inflammation and decreasing cortisol and water gets shed um and then they, they could have the a, a peak that probably going into the last days of the show you might not really have to do much at all um and so and then we still would like taper down training so you do essentially run like a deload week that's i guess the one instance where you probably is almost a deload along with a diet break at the same same time because yep. you're looking for like ultimate fatigue drop right? Uh, so we're going to drop training stress and increase food, reduce diet, diet fatigue and lead, lead them into the show. What, what you had brought up earlier, like refeeding someone, then watching for that, that day, that time to peak them, um, gives great insight to it, what type of loading process you should be doing. If this is someone that would benefit from, um, you know, I, I've been done a lot with like, as far as like front loading, you know, with, uh, yeah, you know, the, the idea of front loading is like, like a, maybe a Monday or Tuesday for the show, you load someone super hard and then you let them kind of come back down again. And then you have like another little bit of a load 
before the show. Right. Um, then the backload approach is just, hey, you just have like maybe one or two days where you load them. Um, I haven't been as, as huge on front loading, but at least with, with, at least with backloading, um, this refeed process along the way gives you insight into how to apply it. So if you have someone after two days after the refeed, they look their best. Well, for a Saturday show, that might be Thursdays when they have their kind of refeed day. Friday, yep. they, they, they dry up, quote unquote. <laughs> um, they, you know, they, they drop off a little glycogen, which in turn drops off a little water. And then they have that balance of dryness and fullness. So, um, you know, that, that could be approached there. Um, and uh, so I think that that is the, the good application. So ideally, ideally, I think ideal situation with utilizing this is you get someone really lean, you're able to run them as a diet break into their show. Then maybe since, since they do have this diet break, they're already going to be pretty full that maybe you have a slight application of like a backload um, right, right before the show just to fill them off completely. Yep. Um, and that would be it. That's, that's all that would be needed. Um, I think if that's not always this case, because most people, they're just like getting into the show, just, just escaping by, <laughs> you know, they need all those days of dieting all the way to like two days before the show. Yeah. Um, so maybe they don't have that diet break, but you at least have the refeed days that maybe you have utilized at least maybe once, right. Um, yeah. To know, Hey, we can, we can implement this on Thursday and then Saturday is your, your show. Yeah. I agree. Is that just to summarize the peak week as a whole is that if this is done correctly, the drasticness of the refeeds for most people doesn't have to be as big as what a lot of people end up doing and end up causing GI distress where it ruins the look in the first place. So um, I think this is an important consideration when it comes to getting that data during a prep that the, the more we can give someone the time to peak where GI distress is not a factor, the better the look is going to be. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and it goes also along with like the food choices that we're picking, right? On your refeeds, this is another, just to, just to drill it in again, like why you should be picking the same foods you've been dieting on because on peak week, you want to be, this is practice for when you implement these foods. So it's like, oh yeah, I eat, I eat sushi rolls on my, my reefy days. It's like, well, you can have sushi rolls before your show. It's like very likely not. Um, oh yeah, I eat the sushi. Then I get like super bloated and gassy the whole time. It's like, well, do you want to go on stage like that? Like, well, no. Okay. Well, we probably shouldn't be <laughs> implementing that on your reefy days. Um, so and, and, like GI distress is huge on prep. You want your waste as small as possible. So it's a consideration for the type of food sources that we are, we are for implementing. Sure. For sure. And I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's probably start to finish, like what refeeds look like throughout a prep and like the, the possible utilities. I think it would be smart for you to like take a step back and just say, Hey, you know, this is what refeeds are. This is what we think the utility is. And, and then we call it, call it from there, huh? Yeah, no, I think that summarized it well. <laughs> uh, I think so. And I, I hope everyone got some good takeaways. You can always reach out to Luke and I, if you have questions and shoot us an email, we're, we're happily open to discuss those things or just any other topics that we didn't even hit. We're welcome to hear about them. I think uh, with, within this, it, it keeps me much more open and, and non-dogmatic. And I think it's very easy when we're looking at, 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 like from a science-based coaching point of view, 
of going down rabbit holes when studies come out and, and locking on to a certain topic and trying to take from the literature what it's, what it's really not saying and what the literature's for. The literature's for is helping give us insight into how things work. And based off that might shape the rationale behind what we're implementing in prep or start to explain the things that we already know work in the coaching field. It doesn't mean we need to change what we do. We just start to understand it better. So, you know, I'd say don't, don't get dogmatic in your coaching practice to where you've all of a sudden have built yourself into you are the keto guy or you are the reefy guy uh, because it makes it really hard to change away from that because you built that into your coaching identity. And, and within this, we want to be able to, to be open and flexible and change as we need and really develop. And once you get there, it's really hard to change yourself. Um, so stay open-minded within this. And if something comes out, you know, question everything and, and really, really take a hard look at it. Look at what other people are doing. I think that was, that was a, a big takeaway is, is trying to stay more, more open-minded and, and truly understand what the literature is for and what empirical evidence is for. I 100% agree there, man. I couldn't have said it better. Well, cool. We'll wrap this one up, guys. Thanks again for listening. J3 University, we will talk to you next time.